This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a thoughtful and thankful life. So a couple of quick things before we get to today's interview. Uh, First of all, I just got back from the Wellness Forum Health Annual Conference, and as usual, it blew me away. I got to meet some amazing people, including Peter Goetje, who is a fierce and tenacious critic of the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical industry, psychiatry in particular, and the evidence he marshaled to show that the system is rigged and we need to be careful was overwhelming. I also got to uh, watch him run on a treadmill. He got on the one I got off uh, at 6 in the morning. And, man, he was going as fast as I was, and he's somewhere in his 70s. So uh, whatever he's doing, it's working. I also got to meet DeAnthony Edwards, um, who is a hero of mine. His story is just amazing. You can Google it and see how he has uh, managed to make peace with one of the most deadly cancers ever known. Uh, He's had over 360 tumors cut out of his body in the last few years. I met him in the gym the following morning. See, it's it's always a good idea to go to the gym really early. He started out by uh, getting on the treadmill next to me at incline five and like 10 miles an hour, running as hard and fast as he could up the mountain. And then after a few minutes of that, he jumped off and did the most incredible body weight workout I've ever seen, including pull-ups that defy gravity. Um, And he and I got to talking, and um, I think both of these guys hopefully will be on the podcast along with a number of other folks that I met and was incredibly impressed by. Second thing is, I have two slots available in my coaching schedule for new clients. Um, You can find out all about that at plantyourself.com slash laser. It's hard for me to, you know, brag on my own coaching But I ask my clients to do hard things, so I guess I'll do a hard thing too. My coaching clients get really good results, and they get them quickly. And they tell me again and again how empowered they feel by our conversations, by the insights that I share, by my own example, that they make progress on things that had had them sort of stuck and stymied and frustrated, sometimes for decades. So if you're interested in getting unstuck, whatever that might be around your health or wellness, Check it out, plantyourself.com slash laser. That's L-A-S-E-R. It stands for laser coaching because we don't waste time. We don't chit-chat. We don't explore the deep, dark secrets of your childhood. We just use a reliable process that gives you massive traction on your most important health and wellness goals. And that uh, definition comes from my friend and coaching mentor, Peter Bregman, from whom I've been learning for the past 18 years. Okay, let's get to today's episode. And first thing I got to warn you, fasten your seatbelt, because today's guest, Jeff Stanford, and I had a conversation that took many turns, uh, approached many subjects. It was hard to come up with a single blog headline for the conversation. I ended up with a line that Jeff had quoted me in an email before we actually got on the phone by the uh, Indian philosopher uh, Krishnamurti, who said the truth is a pathless land. And so I felt better. We were uh, seeking the truth together. Jeff has a wonderful and varied and long story of spiritual seeking, of scientific seeking, and of entrepreneurship, and putting his vision of what the world should be into action for himself, for his family, 
and for the, the thousands and thousands of guests whose lives have been uplifted at his eco-resort, the Stanford Inn by the Sea, which is in Mendocino, California. We talk about Jeff's journey. We talk about why he decided to stop eating animals and the huge impact that had on his life in many surprising ways. And Jeff tries to help me clear up some confusions in my own mind about the different schools and traditions of meditation and what they do and how we should approach them. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. And without further ado, Jeff Stanford, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Are you going to tell anybody this is the second time that we've tried this? No, that will be our secret. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad to be with you. So uh, let's let's pretend we haven't done this already. And tell us about the the Mendocino Inn and Raven's Restaurant, just kind of quickly, like what it is, and then we'll get into kind of all the interesting backstory around it. Okay. So this is the Stanford Inn by the Sea, a name that we actually uh, was suggested to us by a writer, a travel writer that was um, out of Stanford University, and he suggested that we use our last name because it is a natural natural name and well-known in California. Before that, it was Big River Lodge, which is a name we still hold um, in terms of one of the buildings, which is the Big River Lodge building, one of the main buildings. In any case, we came here in 1980 to start basically a new life, doing something that we had found that we could do with the idea that we could live an integrated lifestyle where we could have our children. Joan was pregnant uh, with our son and raise and raise a family and do so all on the same land and where we worked and um, where we also were pursuing meditation and a life and a life that was a little bit more connected than you were that we thought people generally experienced in a city. Hmm. So, so around 1980 is kind of people have moved to the suburbs, they commute to work in the city. And there was kind of this was kind of the period where like all the moms were disappearing from the PTA because everyone was working and nobody was at home and the and latchkey kids became a thing. Is that kind of the the milieu in which you retreated or or moved forward to to this uh, integrated lifestyle? Yeah, I might be. Um, really, what was motivating us was our experience. Joan was a soci- had been a sociologist and had worked actually for the Red Cross Youth in Canada, and I was an anthropologist. My interest in that field was religion and culture, and particularly. Um, religion in terms of the kinds of practices that were we were seeing widespread in the United States and Canada, lots of drugs, lots of sweat lodge retreats, lots of training programs or experiences like EST, which was Erhard Seminars training, and other programs that were going on as well as at Esalen, and, um, which is down the coast in, in Big Sur. There was a lot of things going on at that time which were trying to prompt people to live a more integrated lifestyle. Like the latchkey kids, the struggles, struggles with the economy. At that time, the Nixon administration had come to an end in chaos. I mean, there was wage price controls. It, we, the country had experienced a major economic downturn, and it was just starting to grow out of that um, in the 1980. Gotcha. So... 
what, um, you said you were, you're a religious and cultural anthropologist, and you, you mentioned in our, in our call that we won't mention uh, that didn't work out that you had studied shamanic practices as well. Yes, I'd studied shamanic practices and, I, and, and how they related to the new, at that time, human potential movement that was, had spread throughout the United States that had actually, according to a guy named Hal Stone, who's one of the founders of it, was founded by somebody that later became a mentor of mine, a guy named Jack Schwartz of the Aletheia Foundation, which he started in 1958 in Los Angeles. Um, it, that's all aside, but there was all these people coming up with ideas about how to live a more integrated lifestyle, and that appealed to Joan and I. And uh, we decided to go off on our own and try that. And we thought that the, uh, the best venue, we're not farmers, um, but would be to emulate the farm. And that would be like having a, a small bed and breakfast inn where guests could come and we would take care of them and we would help guide them to really great experiences, not knowing that we were going to have some great experiences ourselves by just being on this land that we chose to live on. Hmm. So you saw it kind of as a as a way to do these kind of leadership or, or human potential um, activities, but without the the sort of fanfare of becoming a guru. Is, was that part of it? Boy, that was that was truly part of it. And that's there's another story there, but it doesn't belong here. That what we did know is that to really live that way. You can't just go to a seminar for a weekend or two. Est was two weekends. Um, seminars and programs down at Esalen were anything from a weekend to a month or more. But you have to actually live it. You have to figure out a way to embody it in your lives. And Joan and I really were looking to do that. We were trying to figure it out. We wanted to know how, how to do that, how to embrace life fully, and at the same time, not generate enough, not a ton of money, but generate enough income so that you could raise your family without tremendous worry. And we'd heard about Back to the Landers. My goodness, we moved to Mendocino, which had a lot of people there um, that were trying to go back to the land. And uh, most of them left. Most of it wasn't successful, but there were communes and, and, and similar programs happening here. They weren't programs as such they were more like a group of people got together and started a commune and and some some are still kind of the remnants are still here but they weren't horrendously successful and we were trying to find something that was successful if you've ever lived with a group of people there's a real hard issue about who really leads it how do you come to decisions without taking an inordinate amount of time and going through a bunch of processes that sometimes seem extremely silly it's very difficult. So we just wanted to do it as a couple. We, we were pregnant when we came here. We knew we were going to have children. We knew we'd have people that we'd be working with because we bought it in that had 23 rooms and we would be expanding it. We were pretty sure about that because at that time, I thought that we could um, in, invent some kind of holistic resort. Well, we got off of that path for quite a long time. We've actually moved back to it um, for a long time, we were just a bed and breakfast in. But what we were discovering, what we were learning at, right after we moved here, is that guests were having some really extraordinary experiences. 
and they would not know how to tell us sometimes. Sometimes they'd talk to Joan, who was mostly at the desk. I would be out working as a carpenter or gardening, trying to get the grounds going. There was eventually 10 acres of absolute undeveloped fields that had to be landscaped and, and um, dealt with. And that's a, that we can talk about that later. But in, in, at the very early days, we were getting these reports and gifts thank, thanking us for something that we didn't do. We All we did is provide a venue for their experience. We didn't provide any expectation that they would have an experience, but many of our guests had these experiences and still do, where they felt enlivened and they felt in particularly ready to make some changes in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it went from everything from becoming pregnant after 10 years of trying and nothing ever happening. They didn't have what they have now for in vitro fertilization and so on. But um, we had some really interesting stories that we heard. Joan remembers more of them than I do. So I wonder if that was a surprise to you or kind of a uh, an affirmation that, you know, I've, I haven't been to an EST workshop, but I've certainly read about them, and I know a lot of people who come out of that movement. And my sense of those weekends is that they're extremely intense. They involve a lot of energy put out by the leaders. And here you were on the land. You know, it sounds like it's like you're doing nothing. You're, you're just creating a space, and people were spontaneously having more profound life changes than they would get from these workshops. How, how did you understand that? That's a good question. I don't know exactly how I thought about it at the time. I just thought the stories were interesting. I was very happy that they were having these experiences. I felt really good wandering around when I was, when we first were here walking around the land. I, I, I wasn't able to pick it up at that time as much as I did later. But there was something special and energy here that caused us to feel really good. I mean, we felt good, and we didn't know whether it was because we couldn't distinguish that it was something that was going to always happen here, even after our circumstances changed. We only knew that we felt good, and we were happy. We had gotten a lot of help financially to get into this property. The former owners really wanted us to be here, so they loaned us a great part of the down payment so that we could do it because we didn't have much cash. And um, a whole bunch of things had come together, so we felt very blessed by that. And then we were going to have our first child, and he he came almost six months to the day after we moved in here. And it was just an amazing place to be and everything was moving so fast. There was so much work to be done here because this was, this was created by an electrical contractor who somebody owed some money to. And so he started building buildings using that contract, the contractor that owed him and um, created this in. And I think actually for the purpose of selling it. So they, they kept up most of the property um, with the inn, and they kept just an acre for themselves. And they were happy to have us here, so they made it possible for us to be here. So, so many things came together to cause us to feel good about our lives and that we were on the right track. And we didn't know that there was something else here, something kind of in, in indigenous, always here. This, this energy, that there's an energy on this land that tr- can be transforming. And in 1985, that energy overwhelmed me when, when I got stuck and I had to start, and I, I had cracked my hip. Essentially, I had 
vaulted a fence and not done it well. My heel of my shoe got caught on, on an electric wire that was not on, and I landed on my hip, and I that I was uh, basically unable to really move anywhere for two weeks. And I started meditating again, which is an effective way to deal with pain. I had done a lot of meditation when I was in graduate school. In any case, I realized at that time that I was living an unethical life and I didn't like that. And it was unethical in the sense that I was eating meat. And, um, and it wasn't right to ask somebody to do something that I would not do. I would not have of, of killed a cow or a rabbit or a, anything to eat it. And I was asking somebody else to do it. And I made a decision right then, I wasn't going to do that anymore. I wasn't going to ask somebody, even though it wasn't direct, or to indirectly ask somebody to kill for me. And then a bunch of changes started happening. And <clears throat> pardon me. And I looked at that. I, uh, the kind of meditation I practiced was um, advocated by a guy named Jiddu Krishnamurti who died in the mid-80s, but um, I had been reading him since my father introduced him to me when I was probably 18 years old and couldn't understand him. And uh, I was getting a deeper and deeper understanding, particularly after I hurt myself and just started becoming more observant and developing the mind that Krishnamurti suggested was the meditative mind. And one of the things that came along with that is I started experiencing energies on this land. I could actually tactically feel them after this one decision about uh, what I ate. And um, what I determined that that might be, what under, under, underlied all, those ch all these choices was I realized there was a conflict in my life and I acted to change it. I didn't duck from it. I didn't make excuses because I like steak and lamb and all that stuff. I realized that it was killing. I just, cho I just chose to change it. That was it. And I talked to Gene Bauer about that when he was here for a race this April. And he said, you know, that it, he t also changed in 1985 and started Animal Sanctuary. And he was talking about that's what vegan means. You make a decision based on something beyond yourself and whether or not you know that some people will continue with dairy, they don't know that the, the calf industry and all of that is based on dairy. They learn, they learn that, they change. But it's acting from something outside of yourself and acting for the benefit of animals, not just for yourself. And by the way, you can argue that because what else is there in a person's life but themselves, even if they think it's something else. But that's pretty metaphysical. I don't know if we want to go there. Right. Well... Probably not right now, but I'm, I'm curious about, you, you seem to have been influenced by, by your study of shamanic traditions, like there was something there that maybe our Western society was lacking. Shamanic traditions, as far as I know, I don't know of any vegan or plant-based or vegetarian ones. In fact, quite the opposite. They're often, you know, really focused on animal sacrifices, on making your own drum out of the skin of the animal. Um, how did you come to see eating animals as exploitative as opposed to simply a, a natural kind of human relationship? So when I was doing this meditation, this observing kind of meditation, I realized that I was making a lot of choices, that every action was a choice. And um, it may be a natural human relationship to eat animals. Actually, I would argue that now based on some work, you know, research I've done on, on 
paleoanthropology, but I, I t- believe, and I believed then, that um, we don't need to eat animals, and therefore I, I didn't want to be involved with killing them. I, I have a choice. The cats that live with us and um, at that time didn't really have a choice. If they saw something jumping around in front of them, they went and killed it and ate it, and like a mouse or something, or a bird. And I didn't like that particularly. Um, and I also recognized at that time I had done some just reading in Time Magazine, you know, 8 million birds killed in the state of Wisconsin, I read, that, and they were all killed by house cats. And there were no house cats in Wisconsin until Europeans brought them. And so they're not they're not indigenous. That's a that's a great argument to have with uh, with, you know, urban cat loving vegans, by the way. Yeah. So you keep them indoors. Um, I know I, I know people I, I know of a, a vet tech up here who really loves animals. She eats meat and everything else, but she does not believe that her cats should be outdoors because they weren't indigenous to here. And so she keeps them indoors so they can't um, eat anything uh, live uh, except for maybe a mouse that might run through her house if that would happen. I don't have any idea. So it, for me, it's, it was a complete thing. We do keep uh, cats indoors here too. Mm-hmm. Okay. But regarding, but regarding all of that, the, the thing is, is that I don't know if what you said is correct, that our natural relationship to animals is um, eating them. Um, I think our natural relationship with animals is identifying with them. Look what we do with dogs, cats, and people see cows and think how beautiful they are. They don't connect that they're eating them, but they, lamb, there's, lambs are totally cute and cuddly looking. And you can see uh, pictures of them when, during lamb season, where some farmers saved one because the mother, the ewe had problems giving birth or something like that. And everybody says, oh, how cute and everything, not realizing that it's going to end up at Easter on somebody's dinner table. But when people start putting two and two together, they start making a change. But when I was in anthropology, my very first class and my only class as an undergraduate was uh, like whatever, in most cases they call it Anthropology 101. I don't know if our, our school used that. The guy, the professor came out, he was an Italian, he said, People misunderstand early man. When early man arrived on the scene, the environment was promiscuous. And what he meant, and of course everybody's snickering, and what he meant was there was food everywhere. There were, there were leaves and fruits and tubers available. Life was much easier than one might think. They had to watch that themselves about, they had to watch out for predators themselves. But life was easy. There was a lot of food and they, and they, the populations grew, they developed languages and so on. The big change was developing cooking because you can get so much more nutrient out of a plant or even an animal for that matter by, by cooking it first. And I think that, that I think the research is beginning to show that brain growth was a result of plant growth, plants eaten with, with heat, under heat, after they've been cooked. I want to make it clear. I wasn't saying that I think that our natural relationship with animals is to eat them. But from what I understand of shamanic cultures, um, they have both, right? They identify with the animals. They pray to them. You know, they uh, but but consuming is very much a part. I'm just curious about your own um, journey 
Because I know, you know, I know a lot of people in the shamanic community and they all tend to be very paleo, you know, but they're, they're like, well, I don't get it from the supermarket, but, you know, we, um, we make sure they had good lives and I, you know, I don't know, I make dream catchers out of the bones, whatever, whatever. But I know very few people from the, sh- the shamanic world or, you know, the alternative, you know, the, um, let's say human potential world who have embraced veganism. So that's kind of why I'm curious and why I'm pushing you to, to, to see, like to figure out where, what, you know, did it, did you have to overcome some of that or, you know, did, 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 did the veganism become a natural outgrowth of your own exploration of spirituality and human potential? Okay. Um, I would say yes on the latter and the latter issue uh, did veganism come out of, of spiritual orientation yes I would say definitely no question about that as far as uh, the shamanic uh, programs and and pe- people eating paleo well that wasn't even in the lexicon there was no paleo diet when I was doing this 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 is late 60s and through the mid 70s that I was actively engaged with these people we were doing or some of us were doing things like pursuing out-of-body experiences, uh, um, pursuing uh, experiences if, if you're taking drugs, you know, with, if you follow somebody like Jacob Narby, dancing dancing with the DNA, which um, uh, from drink, uh, drinking some ayahuasca or something like that, you would understand plants and you would see helical, helical universes, you know, um, in your experiences. All of that's, that's fine. And, um, he wrote a book later on, but he he's probably doesn't eat a lot of animals. I would imagine that, that that writer, he he wrote the Cosmic Serpent, simply because he has a tremendous and deep appreciation of the intelligence in nature. He th- these kinds of these kinds of experiences, I think, would lead you away from killing myself, and they certainly seem to have done so for me. I didn't ever look at it that way, though. I looked at uh, removing conflict in my life as the source of growth by getting rid of conflicts or recognizing conflicts that are tying up psychic energy, you know, real energy and physical energy, trying to hide from them. How many people have you talked to that try to excuse about, excuse them, ex- try to form an excuse for eating animals and they have all kinds of reasons and they have all kinds of difficulty talking to you. You can see them thinking, their lips move around. They have a real strain trying to figure out how to justify what they want to do. They haven't looked at it particularly and they feel challenged just because you're vegan. And we've had a lot of guests come into the inn that aren't at all vegan and have a real problem because they never really looked at it and they, we're a complete turnoff for them. They come here and they they think they feel intimidated, but it's all them. We're not judging them. It doesn't do any good to judge anybody else anyway, because the only you can't change them, so why bother? But they're having problems with their own perception, their own self-perception. That's really interesting, because I just got back from Plantstock uh, last month, and Melanie Joy spoke about how to you know negotiate and engage with people who are uh, engaged in what she calls carnism, this uh, justification system for the exploitation and eating of animals. And I think you've just, for my, in my mind, you've just taken it kind of a step further. And like, I, 
it's not me being plant-based or vegan that's the issue. It's, it's sort of like I'm a rock that they've just run up against ethically. And like someone who's really, really clear about their own ethics around eating meat, let's say a hunter who, um, you know, is completely unified and doesn't have a conflict in their own life, doesn't react the same way that someone who, who has that conflict and even even if it's unexamined, it's the, it's their own internal conflict that's that's got all the energy um, that 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 comes out when they feel challenged or judged whether I'm doing it or not. I, I, that's exactly right. And notice that energy that is so tightened, uh, you know, tightened around this uh, this effort to blind themselves to um, what they're actually doing. So you're there. And um, they see themselves, and they—it's like there's, they're cutting into a steak or something, and they—and they're realizing, and they don't want to realize; they just want to enjoy it. So, it, where does that come from? I have—I am not putting anything into that. I'm not putting any energy into it. I'm not arguing arguing with them. I'm just vegan, and we don't even like using that term anymore because we just want to talk about being plant based. We feel that. It's much healthier to be plant-based. The human biome, you know, the bacteria, gut bacteria, so much of our health is based on an alkaline environment, which you can't get from animals, and based upon, you know, plants and fiber. You probably have covered this in your, in your podcast before. All of that is the way we actually evolved. And that's why when I said earlier that I doubt that we're really meat-based in the sense that we began talking about is that I think we were plant-based for the most part, almost 100%, except occasionally might have eaten a rodent that came and ate some of our nuts that we'd stored away. I really, I really feel that way. I, I don't, there is just absolutely no biological basis to suggest that we are meat eaters. We can eat meat, but there's no biological basis that we are meat eaters, that we even evolved that way. It would have had to have been so far back so pre-human, pre-Australopithecus and all those people because of our teeth and because um, I would assume that their teeth suggest the kind of biome that they had and that, that, human, that human biome, those bacteria and viruses and all that stuff evolved with us and they have that particular, they have that particular ability to, to um, intermix and create all that we need in terms of our immune system for stimulating it and making us healthier and long, more long-lived better moods, all the stuff they're finding out today. You know, that science is only 10 years old. It's amazing. And people should really start reading science. I mean, it would be really a good time for North Americans to become much more serious about looking at peer-reviewed studies and stuff like that rather than the, the detritus that they're looking at, you know. Well, maybe if, you know, if our, our, our leader has been able to, uh, to help 400 NFL players take a knee uh, maybe he'll help us start reading science again. Yes, and maybe st- and maybe not trust un- 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 undocumented social media, and maybe that'll create more time for people to speak to each other as human beings, you know, across a, across a, a table or just sitting on the same sofa or couch. It's amazing to me what I see here at the end now compared to what uh, existed before the use of, you know, the smartphone. Basically, there's cell, there've been cell phones for 
what, since the early 80s. But there's been much more disconnect between people as in phys- physically than there. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, <laughs> people are just sitting. I'll go into watching our staff have family meal, and I'll count the number of people on their cell phones while they're all u- eating together. And they used to talk together. And they talk about few, uh, guests that were coming into the dining room and stuff like this. Now they're completely disconnected, and they're in each one of their own private little social world with maybe they're messaging a, a spouse or 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 boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that, but they're not they're not connected to the people in the same room with them. So there's five to ten people there, and there's usually five, more than fifty percent of them are going to be on their cell phones like that. Do you, do you try to do anything about that as sort of the the patriarch of the of the of the inn and the environment and the energy. Yeah, I go in there and I say, uh, "There's five of you on cell phones. You ought to talk to with each other." Oh, and I make it funny. I usually make some kind of joke. No, I can't yeah. demand what I can't com- demand that. that. That's their time to use their cell phones if they want to. It just seems to me that what they're missing from the inner the actual energy of exchange between. A person that's sitting across from the, ta- uh, the table from them or next to them or cat a corner to them, doesn't matter. There's energy in that room. There's in- that dining room has a ton of energy in one particular corner. I'm not going to identify it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. They can figure it out. In one particular corner. And it actually, it's, it's lighter there. I mean, it's a brighter corner. And um, they, they, that enhances communication between the people that are there. But if they're communicating to people that are going to pick up and read that message in two or three minutes and it's not, a, you know, it's not ongoing and they're in another house, you know, uh, 14 miles away, like up in Fort Bragg, which is the next community up, there isn't the same kind of energy exchange. There's, there's no physicality to it. And from from reading uh, about I think it was, I can't remember what, what magazine it was, but I think it was on your website, uh, a Mendocino uh, sort of a article about you. Um, you became very sensitive to the energy of the land when you started working on it, you know, over 30 years ago. What, what did you start, you know, and you said it, it got enhanced after your hip accident and you, you engaged in meditation. What, can you describe to someone what, it, what it's like to, notice energy from the land? Okay, so there's two particular kinds of things that I noticed. The first one, uh, I don't know whether it was the first, but the first one I'm going to talk about was some places on this land feel warmer You can it, um, than other places. And I'll take people out now that never felt anything like that, and I'll show them, I'll, I'll say, put your hands out, and tell me what you feel. And they put their hands out, you know, they're standing up and they're just kind of feeling. And some will say, well, I feel a little like something's pushing the hairs on my arms or I feel some heat or I feel some something pushing on my hands. They feel something. Most people do. I would say probably 90%. Pardon me. <coughs> and they, they um, get kind of excited. But what they're doing is they're feeling a flow of energy come up through the, through the ground. And there are several places like that. Uh, one of my staff, who's been here for some some 30 years, she has favorite places that she'll go if she's having trouble with um, a significant other or something like that because the energy just makes her feel really good. 
Um, I believe that energy, though, is pretty much non-valent. I've, I've, I've done some things with it before where, i give you an example. A person that had recently gone through some intense chemotherapy asked me to come over and feel a really negative space that she had found uh, just kind of searching for energy. She, she had been a, a person, she was older than me, and she had been a person that was very much into the human potential movement of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Anyway, so she asked me to come over there. I was in Hawaii with her at the time. and went over there and, um, and I felt the energy and the energy felt fantastic. And you know, I attributed her feeling that it was negative to it really working with the the chemicals, helping her cleanse her body basically, but erupting that stuff. It was you know moving in her body, and so she was feeling it's negative. And I think that so much of everything really is a matter of how we look at it, how we interpret it, not really what's there in its in in, in itself. So most of the energy that I've ever experienced, I I have not really experienced negative energy. I've experienced where energy doesn't, where I don't sense any energy, like it's a vacuum of a hole of energy, if you want, but I'm not attracted to it and I don't feel unsafe there. But um, uh, generally speaking, there's either some energy or it's pretty much just, and it's just even, that energy is just even. And then there's some places of high energy. And then occasionally there are places that don't seem to have any, like the energy retracted, like a turtle pulls its head in. That's been my experiences so, with it. Yeah, I'm imagining some people are listening to this and they're just not, they're not relating. I can understand. All right. All right. So, so there is a, a significant sort of public uh, segment of the plant-based community that wants to be extremely science-based. I, I'm much, much more comfortable with them and science than I am with this. These are my personal experiences and, and, and many people that come here experience that stuff. I cannot tell you what it is, and there's no science to back up any claims that I would possibly make about it. Okay, so that's what I'm kind of asking is like, uh, there's often a, a dichotomy or a bifurcation between the people who, you know, want to cite the latest, you know, literature, the latest study, the you know, the China study, or, you know, Dr. McDougall. And then there's a whole group of people who are into the spiritual and the intuitive, and they tend to talk about bio-individuality, and they're very sweet, but I, I find it frustrating to, um, to talk with them because they tend not to uh, give a, a ton of credence to science. And it's, it seems like you are kind of straddling both worlds or very at home in both worlds, and I'm, I'm curious what that's like. Okay, first of all, um, I was trained, I, I believe in science, um, and I believe in numbers, and I believe in, in statistical analysis and the rest of it, and I believe paying attention to that stuff. That's how you move, move things forward. Science is where normally, in a normal, in where you would, when I was growing up anyway, was where you could get agreement that, yeah, this happens. Given this and given that, something, C, you know, given A and given B, C happens, and it's almost always A, B, and C with a with a certain probability that, you know, D happens, but it's usually almost totally negligible. I love the science of people like Rupert Sheldrake, who's trying to quantify uh, morphogenic fields and all that, because, and I think he has something there, and he wants to test it all. That's that whole hundredth monkey uh, precept, and, and I, I think that's worth pursuing, but until that's really well established in science, 
it's something worth pursuing and interesting. I like science, and I like the science of, of about food, and I like the science about how our teeth are formed. And I like that kind of stuff, and talk about real things instead of talking about what we would like to have. That we grew up in a culture that that always uh, had a steak or a roast beef or something like that on on weekends, or a chicken in the pot like Hoover asked for uh, when he was running for president. All those kinds of things. I I want a science that shows that that was the wrong way to go and we should have just grown more crops. I like that. Mm. Um, and I don't want to argue any of this stuff from a spiritual point of view. However, I don't want to deny that I had a, a lot of trans, spiritual transformative, transformative experiences after I cho- made the choice to become basically vegan. And what that, why I think that happened was because I eliminated conflict in my life. And I and I've been looking at this really seriously over the since 1985, so that's obviously 32 years, and I've been looking at it continuously with the idea of what actually happened. And I think what really happened is I freed energy, and once the energy is freed, I didn't. I I went and pursued other conflict, get rid of other conflicts, the the stuff. Try to understand my own anger. Try to understand. Um, why I chose one thing over another, or if I couldn't understand it, how to get beyond it. You know, it's sort of the, why did you choose vanilla ice cream over chocolate ice cream? Try to understand all of that kind, those kinds of choices. Look for conflict. Look for where you're actually wrong, where you've made pronouncements and you said, you know, some horrible stuff. That actually doesn't apply to me, but um, where people have declared things like that idiot, I'm sorry, I shouldn't probably call him an idiot, but I think he is, the man that was just uh, um, uh, selected to become the the, rep- the Republican um, Alabama, Alabama Senate not- candidate for election. Uh, Judge Roy Moore. Roy Moore. He's an idiot as far as I'm concerned. Why, why doesn't he, you know, you you got to look at where you make a pronouncement and say, this is bad, and then you got to figure out whether or not it really is bad, where that where that gay person really is coming from, and all the rest of it. You have to deal with those things and see where your idiocy is and own it. And, and, and um, you can't move forward until you own it and say, I screwed up, and move. then you can move forward. But otherwise, you're always trying to hide it, you know? You're trying to hide stupidity. You're trying to hide the, the bad thing you did to your brother or your sister or or a friend or whatever it is. You're trying to hide it until you can deal with it. I mean, the whole 12-step program, I don't actually know it, but my brother went through it and told me about it years ago. And it seems to me that a lot of that is about owning your behavior and then, and then uh, talking about that and releasing the energy that's all tied up with hiding it and all the rest of it. And uh, you know, you go through a few Seinfeld episodes and then you're all right and you can move forward because you've released a lot of energy. But anyway, releasing that energy here for me um, caused me to have uh, some interesting experiences that were rather extraordinary. But I don't have any science to say that's going to happen to everybody. I'll give you an example. A a really well-known guy from the city came here with his 10-year-old son and he had an epiphany. Something wonderful happened to him. He wrote me a letter, told me about it, but didn't describe the experience. He just called it an epiphany. And he said, you've got to let people know about this. And I wrote him back and I said, I, I would, but once you set up expectations, 
the expectations get in the way of the experience. And he wrote back and he said, got it, you're right. And he dropped that. He dropped that was the end of that conversation. And see, see that, uh, let me interrupt you there because what I've learned scientifically is that expectations cause the experience. So there's something, there's something different going on here, or maybe you know, it might be a different field or mode of being. But if I want, you know, if I'm running a program and I want people to feel like they're going to be successful, I will create expectations, you know, like the Pygmalion effect so that it will happen. And you're saying that in, in certain, in these domains, the expectations actually block the, uh, you know, the success of, of the thing that they might want. I can give you a few uh, examples to discuss about this. One, one is that um, there's a site that a Stanford archaeologist was, um, was um, revealing on digging up in Peru and what he found out was that it was a, a, a site that they that priests used drugs to create a specific experience to validate the cos the cosmology of that people, of those people, so that the the secular leaders would come to that site, have this manufactured experience that was based on the jaguar man, and um, and they would be under the influence of ayahuasca or some drug like that, and um, and the the whole situation, they knew what was coming, and they were led into tunnels that were created to create an experience that reaffirmed and affirmed exactly what their cosmology was. And that's what expectation does. So you can create a tremendous amount of energy. You can use drugs. You can use hypnosis. You can use uh, sweat lodges. You can use uh, meditation. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you if people have an expectation of what's going to happen, they, may, they very well can get that. If, but the problem is, is that that isn't necessarily um, beneficial. The kind of experience that I had here, the kind of experiences I had here, I never expected, nor did I even anticipate that there was such a thing. The first one was seeing things that turned out to be, um, I talked to some people that were more knowledgeable about it after I saw them, but these blobs of light moving around the plants and all of that, particularly at dusk and at night. Obviously, they're hard to see during the daylight because it's bright here. Um, that was one of the first things that I started seeing. And, and I talked to people and they said, well, these are divas and you can communicate with them. Well, I already knew that you could communicate with them because I tried to. But that, you know, that was something that started right after that change to being, um, to, to, to being vegan. But the question was, is... You know, and I had nothing at all to guide me as to what those things were, and I had no expectation that I would ever have seen anything like that because I never even read about anything like that. Um, but you know, when I read about people talk, communing with spirits, I had a completely different picture in my mind. And um, I, the problem is, there's only one other person here that's seen them. He doesn't live here anymore. He lives in Loomis, but. He was a very close, he still is a very close friend of mine, and he saw the same things, and he didn't think, we never told any told each other, because we didn't think anybody, he or anybody else would see them, or had seen them, and then one day, uh, you know, my, his head and my head turned really quickly following one of those, and he said, did you, or I said, did you see that, and he said, yes, I see them all the time. He was a guy that grew up on this property. Anyway, the, the, the issue is, when it's not something that you can form a consensus about, I don't like 
going there. I don't want people to ex- to expect to, to have that kind of experience because it's beyond my control. If I want them to, you know, I can't create a context pretty much that they will get that experience like you can. If I want somebody to be joyful about not eating meat and enjoy enjoy and have a joyful experience about cooking and preparing plant-based foods and and getting to understand the nutritional effects and all that we create programs like that and people come out of here feeling great you you can you can take a picture of them at the beginning and we should and and uh, and then you see them at the end and their faces lost all the tension they have more glow there because of how they're eating they're they they're no longer have splotches on their face it changes them and they see that how long that lasts for, I don't know. You know, they might be like when people go to these kinds of training programs in the 70s, they'd go home and they, after two weeks, everything would return return to normal, not the good normal they were, they really were trying to, trying to achieve through attending a program like Earhart Seminars Training. So that's the problem. Joan and I wanted to live it and live it every day and not have it be something that dissolves away after two weeks. So what what you're describing in terms of there's there's truth out there and you can experience it for yourself even if it's not scientifically validated or or predictably um, you know, spread around the population reminds me of something you emailed me before our, our talk about um, the the path of or the truth is a pathless land right that that once you lay out the path then someone can follow it. And you're never quite sure if they're discovering the truth or if they're just following the the, the, the the trolley car tracks of their own expectations. Exactly. And, you know, I look at this completely differently than a lot of people. You know, I got to tell you, I am a minister. I, I don't do much. I, you know, I do mostly spiritual counseling. But one of the things is, you know, this sacred versus secular I think that's a totally, totally phony uh, dichotomy. I think we're, we have a body, and we, and we live in a, in, a, in a world where there's chairs, because I'm looking at one, and there's cars, and there's people, and there's traffic, and there's noise, and there's cell phones, and there's people always on these cell phones, and there's all this stuff always going on. And to, and to f- discover your life in that, and your own meaning, and your own power, and there's power in understanding and knowing that meaning is um, fascinating to me. And I think that's really what the nature of life is. You don't go hide under somebody else's belief system, whether it be Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Jewish or um, Muslim or whatever. You've got to find this for yourself. And, um, and I think that's what some leaders say have, were saying, and yet we got totally lost. I'm reading this incredible book about Buddhism right now by a guy named Stephen Batchelor. He's an amazing writer. Oh, is that is that Buddhism without beliefs? No, he he wrote that. No, this is after Buddhism. It's called. It's his newest book. Okay, I don't know it. It's well worth reading. And the Buddha's the Buddha that he produces that talks about is he doesn't produce him. He talks about it. He's eking out of the early literature, the early writings, is a totally secular person. <clears throat> He is finding life, you know, and meaning in the secular daily world. You know, he's not just hiding out in a forest. And it's an absolutely beautiful book because what he's talking about is attainable. That's what Dharma means anyway. It's attainable by 
for everybody. And now I don't know a lot about Buddhism. Um, I've read books, you know, by Rensselaer and stuff like that about meditation because I teach meditation, but I teach such a different meditation than what a lot of, I don't teach sitting meditation. I teach uh, an approach to life, uh, how you, how you uh, look at life, how you look at yourself and how you try to get away from condemning or super enjoying or, you know, being proud of yourself, you know, get rid of attachment really and still uh, find so so much significance because actually that opens the door to significance and it and opens the door to spontaneity and that opens the door to complete compassion. And um, I want to know better how to talk about that with people and I've yet to find anybody that does does that well. But I like what I'm reading that Bachelor talks about, the secularity of the of the Buddha. So almost everything that passes for Buddhism has nothing to do much with what he was doing. You know, look at what's going on in Miramar right now. Buddhists killing Muslims. It's amazing to me. That would have been the farthest thing in the world that he would ever do, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I just I just took a note that I, you know, every, as I as I have each interview, some part of my brain is always searching for the the title. And I like so, something about like this conversation is, is really like busting dichotomies for, for me, um, for, you know, one of them being this exploration that I tried to pin you down on between sort of, you know, spirituality and science. And I'm not being, I'm not able to pin you down. And, you know, so when you mention someone like Rupert Sheldrake, who most quote scientists would get very upset when if you mention him because they would see him as renegade and you know because he's he's exploring things that are outside of paradigms and i think about people like colin campbell who explored outside of the the paradigm and got vilified by a lot of his colleagues and people like wilhelm reich who tried to quantify you know you mentioned you love numbers he tried to quantify these um you know energetic states um, you know, do you, do you feel like all this spiritual stuff is simply science that we haven't figured out how to measure yet? No, I think it's measureless. Less. It's not measurable. Um, I, I think that a lot of that isn't something that is going to yield itself to science. And I think the stuff that yields itself to science is stuff that we can actually use or, or, or make and, and, and benefit other human beings. Um, and I think the compassion is immeasurable, and um, and I think that 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 this talking about these energies and all of that is is interesting. We haven't really measured them yet. You know, the Russians tried to claim they were doing that back in the fifties. They weren't. There's no evidence to suggest that they had anything at all. But it, everybody wants to make it scientific. I'm happy if we just do good science. Sheldrake was trying to do good science. He wanted a lot of experiments, and he was suggesting them. That Lynn McTaggart, who came up with the field, she came out with a book of some experiments that we need to do. People that looked at Colin Campbell's work when he was working at Cornell, was it Cornell, I think? Anyway, wherever he was, they didn't like his results. He was basically saying animal products feed animal-based cancers, in other words, cancers in animals. And, and some other things. And he was, he was do, dealing with how it feels, uh, can feed other disease, uh, animal products feed other diseases. And they didn't want to look at it. And they vilified him. But his stuff was science. And the fact that other scientists vilify it without doing the same work, without ex- doing the same kind of experiments, 
without trying to validate it or invalidate it, doesn't matter what, and being honest about it, without being paid by the Dairy Council, the Beef Association, that 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 is real science. And um, I think Campbell did real science, and it just was a pushback because what it did is it hit the culture of these people, and their culture is really hard to give up. I mean, each of us are an expression of culture, even though we don't don't really know it. We think we're independent. We don't. We think that we're unique, but what we are is unique combination of learned stuff that we learned, that we experience, that that moves around, informs who we think we are, and nothing about it's unique. What's unique is your relationship to all of that, and that is something that you have some control over. The rest of it, it's kind of like a self-organizing principle. There's a guy. I guess he was at Davis that did a lot of work on this area, a guy named Arthur Dykeman back in the 50s and 60s. We're self-organizing. We see patterns. It's all automatic. And then the trick is to, to, to embrace that and get a sense of the specialness of that, that we are actually all of that. We're not just the the thing that sees it, but we're the thing that's being seen. We're the subject and the object. And people don't people don't get that, and and that I think meditation, which isn't quantifiable, is the way to go. But to talk about it in a way that make, that people don't have to sit for ten days like a vipassana. Vipassana is a great place to relax, to 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 come to ground. You know, if you if you've interviewed Sid, he's always talking about grounding. That's very very good, and and that kind of meditation is where you start. But it doesn't always where you start. You can do it while you're walking. You can do it while encountering a major problem. You can deal with it. You can you can slip to it when you're having a, a major issue with your kids. There are a lot of times that you can deal with that, and you bring that kind of meditative mind, that detachment, that ability just to see both sides of it. Both sides being you, the responder, and you, and and whatever it is you're responding to, and at the same time realize. That you're not that the witness or whatever it is you think is seeing all this and is so much wiser. It's not different. It's part of that whole process. Yeah, let me, let me ask you about that. And this, you know, I feel we've had a very very sort of freewheeling conversation. Neither of us really knew what we were going to talk about when we started, and so it does it doesn't have the kind of narrative arc that that I often use as a crutch. But um, I've been doing a lot of meditation lately, and I feel stuck. With a what feels like a paradox, and maybe you, maybe you can help me with it, and maybe this will be helpful to other people, and maybe this is just me, you know, pulling rank and saying this is my podcast, damn it. So we're going to talk about me for a minute. Um, but so there's sort of two schools of meditation that I've been going back and forth. One is sort of the functional school, like, and that's very science based, where we can measure people's brains in fMRI machines, and, you, and, and, and people can say like. I meditate so that I'm calmer, so that I feel better, so that I'm more creative, so that I bring my blood pressure down. And it's all, you know, meditation so that, so that this, this ego in this body can be happier and more productive. And then there's the other bit that I get from people like um, Adyashanti. Um, I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with his work. No, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. So he's, he's sort of out of the uh, Advaitic so, you know, and his whole thing is like we, we, we're, the purpose of meditation for him is to discover the truth. And the truth is 
sounds very much like what you said, like we are the observer and the observed. You know, it's that Meister Eckhart line, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. This kind of like mindfuck that I really don't understand at all. But when I try to go there in meditation or in, in everyday life, when I'm trying to apply that kind of mindfulness, it really feels like multitasking as opposed to mindfulness. And first of all, I wonder, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Oh, good. <laughs> help me. I don't know if I can help you, but I, first of all, um, the, 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 these latter meditators that you mentioned, I, what was his name? Uh, Adya Shanti. I think he's in Oakland or, or somewhere like that. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 he's even close to me and I don't know him, but um, I, I would think that uh, uh, to me, meditation is about the truth. There's two kinds of meditation. There's the kind that and I, I'm pretty sure that I'll give you an example. A guy that John Kabat-Zinn Zen sent a, a person here to look upon, he'd heard about the end and he wanted to look at the end as a possibility for a, a retreat, a meditation retreat. And basically I think it was an introductory meditation retreat for some high-powered business people, where they were going to have um, a place to just completely unwind and uh, learn about meditation. And I think he was going to lead it himself. So this woman, some assistant of his, comes here and wants to talk to me about it. And um, Joan introduced me, and I said, and Joan wanted me to handle this because I do meditate on a, on a specifically, not, not on a regular basis, like a lot, all the time, as, I can, as much as I can. Anyway, so... I'm in the dining room with her, and I said, this is not a place you want to do this. And she was, like, stunned. Like, I was already turning her down before um, before, she, before she even got into what she needed, how many rooms, you know, and, you know, how many people would be doing it and all that. And, I, and she said, why? And I said, and I pointed out the window, and at a distance there's a bridge. And I said, you can hear the bridge. And you can really hear it when there's a siren across it if the ambulance is going trucks go up and down the road over here. Um, this is a great place to meditate because you have to learn how to deal with all that. But when somebody's paying, that they were going to be paying a lot of money, these participants. When somebody's paying a lot of money, they want to have the meditation experience that they have already imagined. And that is perhaps all they hear is a cricket and, and at a distance so they don't get annoyed by the cricket or a bird flying off, or something like that. And we went very deeply into this dichotomy of the two kinds of meditation. Meditation in the world, meditation in a, in a meadow someplace that wasn't too busy with insect activity. And she completely got it. And she called whoever she was responsible to. It might have been uh, John Kabat-Zinn. I don't know who she called. Told them what I said, and they agreed that this was not a place to do it, and thanked us, and that was it. And, that, and that's the point. One kind of meditation sets a whole bunch of expectations, and it um, it's it comes with it, and you relax, and sometimes you know it's going to be hard because it's like vipassana. I've never sat for ten days, kind of. I got to learn how to sit for ten days, but you can't even do the three day until you've done the ten day. So there's all these expectations. They've heard people have been talking about the kind of meditation that the fellow in Oakland or Berkeley is talking about is where you're looking for the truth, and that's going to be the, a path that you develop as you move into it. And you'll be developing, is this true? Am I experiencing, or is this just something comes up? And is this just something that I learned, this response to it? 
that I like this thing. Um, you know, whatever it is, you just keep asking questions. It's very inquisitive. It's very inquisitive, but the questions aren't something you go and sit down and talk to some, some other person about. They're questions that you ask yourself about. You see where your attachments are and whether or not, you know, whether or not you're seeing what really is there. And then when you really see what's there, you can't talk about it. And it's a flash. And, and, and um, so they're both forms of meditation are totally valid forms, but, because, but they have two results. One is an exploration that never ends. And you keep slipping into what, if you read, if you read Bachelor, what I believe uh, uh, um, the Buddha was calling, they don't call him the Buddha, they just call him Gautama. Um, but what Gautama the Buddha was calling Nirvana, and it's a flash. It isn't, it isn't something that stays with you that way. It's a flash of insight, which is, after all, Vipassana meditation is looking for that insight because it's insight meditation, but it starts with you know, examining the body and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it kind of, it's, it's got too much of a pattern for me anyway, but for other people it's a wonderful thing. But you get this insight when that awareness of being subject and object at the same time just hits you. And it's a realization. I have no other word for it. It's just something you, you, you know. So both meditations work. What The one, the, the relaxation, the one to free yourself of anxiety is, 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 um, is a really powerful one. I dealt with a person a while back that has severe, it was a spiritual counseling session, he had severe uh, uh, anxiety. And he told me the treatment that he'd been given on how to deal with this anxiety. Uh, or actually, in this case, it was hatred. But what I found was that it was precisely a meditative approach. He kept looking at it and kept seeing things and how he felt and then, and then realizing that that was a response because of something else. He saw all these connections he had a way to go. He was going to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it. But he was actually taught that at a special institution just for dealing with that. But they basically mm. taught the same kind of meditative practice where you're looking for the truth. Here's another example. A lot of people have anxiety, let's say, about money. You know, they're worried about money. What's going to happen next year? In our case, what's going to happen in this off season? How much extra money we're going to need? All this kind of stuff. You know, how I'm going to make my car payments and all that. I work with a lot of people, and they'll come to me and they'll say, uh, I'll say, well, what did you do about, what kind of plans do you have to do about your financial problems? Oh, I got a plan, I got a payment schedule, and I'm making actually more, you know, I'm making, I'm doing some overtime, I'm in pretty good shape about all of that. And um, they say, they, they, they basically say, I have a plan that's working, and yet they're completely caught up in anxiety about it. What if the plan breaks? All kinds of different issues at it. And, you know, the insight here is, do you think the problem is the financial one, or do you think that you have a problem with anxiety? That anxiety is out there looking for something to attach itself to. You know, one time it's this, one time it's a relationship and all of that. And they all get to a point that it's about the anxiety, not about the money. Yeah, I've... Uh... I've had that experience where I feel like I really want to, you know, hand, handle my anxiety about money before I handle the money issue. Because, like, if if the, if I handle the money issue, then I'm scared where the anxiety is going to go next. 
Like, you know, like right now, I don't have anxiety about my relationships. But if I handle the money issue, then it's going to screw up the relationships. So like seeing all of the stuff that happens in my life as an opportunity to deal with the inner stuff, as opposed to unfortunate externalities that I wish hadn't happened. Yeah. And you, you hit it. And the, the cool thing about understanding the anxiety from the, the way that you're understanding it, to go from one thing to another and mess things up, is that, <clears throat> or I may just need to clear my throat, the anxiety, um, each time you see it, dissolves it a little bit more. It'll come up again. It's not an instant um, healing from anxiety. But the next time you, re- you remember and you'll go, aha, that's just anxiety attaching itself to it. I got to deal with it. I'm going to look at that. I'm going to look and make sure that everything's okay in that relationship or everything's okay in um, my debt handling or whatever it is. And, and, um, but you recognize that it's anxiety that's messing with you. And it comes from maybe beliefs that your parents ac- accidentally instilled in you, yet you're not good enough, that you can't handle everything or your teachers did or a friend did. It really doesn't matter. But you just keep getting into it, and pretty, and you pretty soon start dissolving it. And each time, the effect is less. And um, it's an amazing place to be. I've done a lot of it. I have a lot of anxiety, but it actually works. You just keep at it. And um, the trick is to recognize that you're experiencing anxiety. The thing is, is that we start, or I start thinking, well, it's a problem about money. But I've got everything planned and set up for the off season and all that. But I'll still suffer from it. Then I, then I have to uh, remember it's just anxiety rearing its nice tousled head. You know what I mean? But we have we have to keep doing that work, and that is work, and that takes energy. And it's easier to address that with less conflict in yourself. And I found that out. And I really that when I really started. When that really began to unfold for me was when I chose not to eat animals that were killed by somebody else. And you did you did that as your truth again. So not it, it didn't come to you from reading someone else's stuff and then sort of just interjecting it into your life. But do you, I mean, do you think that anyone can get there or are there people like, you know, we're talking about non-judgment and non-attachment. Do you think that every path of truth leads to veganism and compassion, or is that just your path? That's a good question. I think that when you're compassionate and intelligent, I mean, you look at things with intelligence where you understand that all the stuff that you've learned uh, that were passed down to you through your parents from the American Dairy Council or something like that, is not necessarily true. If you really look deeply into it, not looking for what you want to see, but looking for the science behind it, you become compassionate. Excuse me, I've got to clear my throat. <coughs> it's just the way it works. I don't have any water in here. It, um, that's the way it works. I do think that most people would come to being, well, everybody I know, um, has have come when they get deeply into it have come to being compassionate in the sense that they're no longer eating animals. Some may not recognize what really is going on with eggs, and um, and I have to stop them and tell them. But many I haven't been able to stop and tell. So they'll say, "Well, I'm eating eggs from my farmer friend next door, and he doesn't kill the roosters." 
And I say, well, what happens to the roosters? And he says, well, they let them fly around and go around. And of course, they're not equipped for dealing with the wild anymore, and they end up you know, being dinner for some something like a raccoon or a skunk. But the hens all get put away. It's sometimes hard for people to see through that, but um, they at least are are doing it from compassion, and then maybe eventually they'll see through that. It's the way we work. I mean, it takes it takes a lot of us some time. I mean, I I recognize that I wouldn't kill an animal to eat it at some point probably. I didn't put it together that I was asking somebody else to do it until I was actually looking at it. And I go, oh my God, that's not good. And I'd had this conversation with my dad years before and we were walking, it was winter or something like that. And he was talking about um, a businessman that he knew that was is, is, would have been the same age as his father and how he kind of just intuited from him, you never ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. You may not be able to do it yourself because you don't have the techno technological knowledge or whatever, you know, physically able to do it, but you would do it if you could. And that's uh, that was for my dad. He intuited that from watching this man work, and he thought, and he adopted that, and I did too, as an, eth as an ethic, as, as a way to live. And that's exactly what happened. I remembered that when I thought about the animals back there sitting on that couch in 1985. Mm. So um, I want to let you go. I really appreciate the hour more because we had that uh, conversation before that didn't work that no one will know about. Um, but tell, tell folks a little bit about the end. Just kind of let's, you know, people have heard the energy behind it, the energy behind you and the, the vision. Now let's do a little ad so that people can know about the inn and if they want to go there, what they would discover. Okay, well, for us, the inn is a continually unfolding um, experience. For our guests, it's sometimes an off, it's a new experience. It's a complete resort in the sense that it's a wellness resort. We have everything from yoga to massage from paddling uh, paddle boards to outrigger canoes that are built especially for Big River, which is an estuary that stretches eight miles inland, and it's in a narrow forested canyon. That's part of the experience that we offer our guests. We have a, a plant-based dining room, the, the Ravens. Um, we specialize in food that at the highest culinary levels that we can possibly make it, but we avoid oil. We where we were SOS, this whole thing about sugar, oil, salt free, we were we were cooking that way before we were inundated by people saying you, you got to be compliant with this this notion. And I I didn't answer. I never really answered them. Sid was basically dealing with that more than I was. And but we finally put on the menu how we were actually cooking the dishes, and. Um, we have rooms with wood-burning fireplaces. The wood comes from downfall in the forest nearby. We have um, wonderful views of our gardens, which are really exceptional. They're the remake of the China gardens that existed here prior to, um, prior to this becoming a, a destination. It was during the logging days. They used to feed the people in town with the produce grown here because there was fresh water bubbling to the surface. You need that on the coast because there, the water from rivers, it's all salty, it's brine. It's actually tidal, so it's the ocean. Um, 
we have these beautiful views, these rooms done in pine. We selected pine because they were cutting it down in those days. I think they still are because it gets in the way of growing Douglas fir and, and uh, inland sequoia, which they use, of course, for building. So they cut down the ponderosa pine. So we're paneled in pine. Every, every board that we've chosen since we've been here, every technique that we've used has been to be the most sustainable technique. And we started doing that in the early 80s when we first bought the place in 1980. Our desire has always been to find what is the most sustainable and act from there. And even if it wasn't something that, that we understood, or sometimes we have to admit that we can't do it. Like we have no solar panels here because we don't get enough sunlight. But I'd love to do it, but it would cost a million dollars to do it. Just basically very expensive to put in uh, enough solar panels to power even this one building for um, the day, daylight, you know, daylight. Right. So how can people find out more? Where, where on the web are you, or is that the best way? Stanfordin.com. It's very simple, just S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D, like the university, I-N-N.com. And watch out. Don't get hooked by all the sites that use our name and advertise it so that they can sell reservations for us. We were dropping a lot of them because they're raise, causing people in our business to raise rates because – they take 15 20% of the off the top including the tax okay so if you if you go take a take a look check it out direct stanfordin.com uh, you and i were connected by your staff nutritionist Sid Garza Hellman the the small steps guy is a and a, a luminary in the field of uh, of plant-based habit and education um and you also have a, a restaurant, The Ravens, that has a cookbook out, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, the cookbook's out there, and we're working on a second one today. Well, not today, probably tomorrow. But that's a, that's a detail. And there's another thing that we do here that should be pointed out, and that's we have creative workshops where people can, can use art to, to, for personal exploration, but they don't have to talk about it. We just teach them how to do it. And that's a really inspiring thing. Uh, when I spoke earlier about when we have one, one, run one of our programs, people's face complete, faces, com they're completely transformed from beginning to end of program. That program, uh, the creative program, does that in a matter of an hour and a half and two hours, whether or not they're part of any other program. It's amazing the transformation people have by going through, by, by experiencing that. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I'm sure there's people listening to this who are thinking, boy, I really need something, whether it's a getaway, uh, an, an exploration, inner exploration, a, uh, a, a chance to unwind. So it, so it sounds, I haven't been, so I'll have to, I'll have to correct that at some point so I can uh, make, make the uh, recommendation w with full integrity. But knowing Sid and getting to know you this hour, um, I hope folks will will take you up on it and and discover their own uh, pathless land t towards uh, their growing towards their potential. And it's such a wonderful trip, to put it bluntly. Um, and the nice thing about here, I'm not just trying to sell this. It's a complete experience. Not only we have all these things that you do, you can do or not do, but we have a, a a bookshop that's really cool. All the stuff that we've been talking about is based on stuff that I've experienced and that I've read um, in terms of understanding the science of how we really don't know 
as much as we think we do. We don't even, we're so much that science has to, to examine. So we sell books that, um, like Holographic Universe, which introduces that to a lot of people. We sell books uh, that uh, have, have been written on Krishnamurti's talks. Actually, there are his talks. We sell McTaggart's book. We sell um, books on the science of eating. We sell Sid's books, and we do sell our cookbook. We sell books on mushrooming because we do nature tours, and mushroom season is almost upon us. As soon as we have a full inch of rain, the mushrooms will start flushing, and it's going to be awesome up here. And um, we sell and we provide these books, and we don't even care if people buy them. We really want them to look at them. They can take a picture with their phone and then order them from Amazon. We really don't care. We just want them to have this exposure to the wealth and, and the richness of, of life. And it's just uh, Nardi's book on the intelligence in nature, which he wrote like, you know, 2003 or something like that, still in print. It's awesome because you have no idea that slime mode is smart. It's very, interest, it's very interesting. They stimulate your imagination and you have a far deeper appreciation when you read these books about the intelligence of a, of a cephalopod, of, a, of an octopus, or the intellig intelligence of, of, of something like a slime mold, and you don't want to really kill it with bleach even though you're gonna, somebody's going to slip on your walkways. It's very, you know, life is full of wonder, and we try to provide that either people wandering around, going to tide pools, paddling up an awesome river, going to a, 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 a creativity workshop, doing yoga, or just reading by the fireplace burning wood that's uh, sustainably harvested from, you know, de deadfall. It's what we're trying to do. We want people to be, when they leave here, to have, a, ha have something to take with them that they can continue to build on and grow on. And that's really why we're still doing this after 30-some years, almost 40 years. And it is 40 years. We started actually in 75. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to experiencing it for myself one day, for me and my family, and I hope others will... Uh, listening to the podcast, we'll go check you out and then get back in touch and let me know and thank me for, uh, for introducing me, for introducing them to you. The other thing is they can get a lot of our philosophy by checking out, um, I'm not, this isn't really an ad, but Raising Healthy Parents that Sid just released. It's, a lot of it's based upon getting the same kind of stuff that, that we hope people experience here by getting to be healthier oneself, then you become a healthier parent, you become a healthier spouse, you become a healthier co-worker, you become a healthier boss. Yep. And I'll have Sid on to talk about that book at some point in the next couple of months. And I just want to thank you, Jeff, for uh, your generosity of spirit and taking the time with us today. You're really welcome. And I'd like to meet you personally. I'd be very interested to talk to you about meditation. Cool. I'll keep, I'll keep working on it so I have more questions. Call me anytime. You've got my email address. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. Great. It's wonderful meeting you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to all the philosophers and the authors that we talked about, as well as the Stanford Inn by the Sea, and the Ravens Cookbook at plantyourself.com slash 239. If you're new to this show, you can catch up 
on 238 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you get the podcast, but not the weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can get that and also get the Slippery Slope Report at plantyourself.com slash slippery dash slope. In addition to subscribing on iTunes, other ways that you can support the show and help us get our word out is by sharing this in other episodes on social media and becoming a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution. And you can do that over at plantyourself.com and just look for the Patreon link in the sidebar. I'm up to $441 a month, which is $59 shy of 500, which is halfway to my first stretch goal. I would love to make that happen so that I can devote more time to the podcast. You might be noticing that I'm back to a twice a week schedule instead of once a week. If you appreciate that, if you like the extra content, if you liked the shorter episode with Elspeth Feldman, uh, the speedy vegan on her Thanksgiving cookbook, uh, Pardon My Turkey, and you want more content and just more stuff and more of my time, it comes at a price. And the price is for you guys telling me it's worth it to you. And the best way to do that is to actually defray some of my costs, some of my hard costs, and some of my time costs by becoming a patron. Again, you can go to plantyourself.com and just click the Patreon link in the right sidebar on pretty much any page. In garden news, there's not much garden news. The kale is sort of holding its own. We're making our morning smoothies, I would say, every other day from garden kale and every other day other than that from Costco kale. So not bad, not bad. And in running news, this was my last week off. And finally, at that uh, treadmill, because other people were watching me, like uh, Peter Goetje and D. Anthony Evans were, were watching, so I cranked it up. I set the incline higher. I set the speed higher. So I think I'm back, and I'm ready to uh, chase my next goal, which might be the Tobacco Road Marathon in Durham in March. But it might be the Baton Rouge Marathon uh, coming up before then, or I was invited um, to to run the uh, Little Rock Marathon in Little Rock, Arkansas, also beginning of March. So uh, the, the marathon world is my oyster. I'll keep you posted as I decide what I'm going to do next. Okay, thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. It'll come up in just a few seconds now. Cue the music. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all you beautiful Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Dina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rantis Turkis, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peters, and Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette, Adam Gila, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Doron Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner. <sighs> Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Halsmith, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Sire, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Heath Karen, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Chad Hirsch. <gasps> 
Sean Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, and Aaron Greer. And Aaron, apologies. Aaron's been a uh, supporter for a while, and somehow her name was not on the list, but it is now. Thank you all for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. I'll see you again on Friday. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>